Every week, for better or worse, we give you our unvarnished analysis and punditry on the changing world of energy. Sometimes you agree with us, sometimes you don't. The most important thing is that we're all having a conversation, right? We're all figuring this out together. Now, we want to hear from you. From now until January 31st, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. At the end of the month, we're going to pick our favorite and give that listener a free year's subscription to GTM Squared, our premium service. That's worth 249 bucks. If you don't listen on Apple's platform, write a review on the platform of your choice, screenshot it, and tag the Energy Gang on Twitter. Have fun with it, and at the end of the month, we'll award a free subscription to GTM Squared to the author of our favorite review. Thanks so much. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Wonder is the leading commercial solar financier, according to GTM and Wood McKenzie. We track this space very closely, very granularly, and Wonder really has jumped out in front, having already financed 100 megawatts of projects in the last few years. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community or commercial solar project, head over to wondercapital.com GTM. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, contributing editor with GTM. Welcome. What is energy efficiency? That sounds like a pretty simple question, but I can assure you it is not. Defining efficiency used to be pretty straightforward. Weatherize, upgrade equipment and lighting, maybe use a bit of social science to cut consumption— But now efficiency is becoming just as much about shaping demand in real time to support distributed energy. And that's shaping how it gets defined and implemented. So we're going to start a bit existential. Then we'll look at one particular technology that is catching everyone's attention as part of the electrify everything movement, heat pumps. How can they slash energy demand in homes? We'll look at the broader suite of electrification and look at heat pumps specifically. Finally, we'll wrap up with a look at what's happening at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Catherine is there telling the world about the future of energy, and she comes to us from Davos uh, in a kind of crowded spot. I guess that's the closest you could get to a quiet spot there. Catherine, greetings to you there in Davos. Thank you so much. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon in my time, so... I'm well on my way. So paint the picture of what's happening around you. Our listeners will hear some chatter behind you. Where are you at and what's going on today? I'm actually in the World Economic Forum staff room. They have a huge room where all the staff that keep this place running and make sure all the panels go well and the speakers are where they need to be and are saying what they need to say that all these people are here. And it takes it, it takes a village to make this thing tick, let me tell you. So you bust in there with your microphone. You say, step aside, everyone. We've got a podcast to record. (laughs) I think there was some begging involved, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You've come to us uh, the last few years from there, and we've picked up a lot of new listeners since last year alone. So it's good to remind people that Catherine is not there with the global elite sipping champagne and eating shrimp cocktail. You're working pretty hard over there. I am. I don't own a fur coat. I have what I call a... uh, a portable sleeping bag that I wear. <laughs> living that podcaster lifestyle. <laughs> Got that right. Jigger, what kind of lifestyle are you living over there in San Francisco at six in the morning? Well, I, I'm living the Embassy Suites San Francisco airport lifestyle. So it sounds pretty s- similar. <laughs> well, I don't know about you all, but uh, when I'm at the Embassy Suites, 
I find that the temperature is all over the place. You know, I go to a hotel and some rooms are blasting cold air, some rooms are hot. It can be hard to control temperature in buildings like that. And you know what? There's the same thing in my house. My house stays a consistent temperature, but there's a war going on over the thermostat. It's a universal war. Uh, I think a lot of people deal with it. I like the house a bit cooler in the winter and warmer in the summer, so we use less energy. My wife, she likes it a couple degrees different from me. So uh, this battle, this is historically what people picture when they think about efficiency. Put some insulation in, put better windows in, keep a watchful eye on the temperature. If you're like me, throw a hoodie on before touching the thermostat. But the last few years have brought sweeping change to the perception and the actual definition of efficiency. With the rise of new consumer tech in homes, bundled distributed energy, a shifting demand curve due to PV, improvements to data collection, and the electrify everything movement, efficiency is taking on a new role on the grid. So what is that role exactly? Jigger, what to you are the biggest changes underway in efficiency today? Well, you know, I'm actually still trying to figure it out, I have to say. You know, the 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 ones that I have understood is that, you know, so for a long time we had three or four different story arcs here, right? One is uh, appliance efficiency standards through Energy Star. We had building codes, um, which are, you know, sort of established by each town. So some towns might still be on the 2005 building code, so lobbying them to adopt the more recent one. And then you had these massive energy efficiency rebate programs, right, for retrofit. So that's, let's call it seven, eight billion dollars a year across the country. And you have companies like ICF International or Clear Result or Franklin Energy or others who have popped up really just to, you know, become very close with the electric utility industry and getting contracts and doing the things that public policy asks you to do. I think in the modern uh, times you're seeing things like Nest thermostats, where the data is actually quite mixed on Next. It's not clear that it saves a lot of money, but what it really does is potentially allow you to shift load uh, rather easily and get paid a lot to do that shift. They haven't fully utilized that feature, but you can imagine in the future that shifting being far more valuable than the kilowatt hours saved. And so you see like Matt Golden and a lot of his work um, and new laws in California where they're moving a lot of their energy efficiency dollars to uh, time-based um, and feature-based um, rebates as opposed to just kilowatt hour savings. And so you're starting to see this really big shift in the energy efficiency world. And what seems different about the Nest thermostat is that when the Nest was rolled out and they started partnering with utilities, it was really an extension of emergency demand response. How do you get people to lower their energy use at a very specific time of day when you have peak demand? Nest has evolved its partnerships with solar providers. And now that we have more solar on the grid uh, and it's starting to push down wholesale prices, you have utilities thinking differently about demand side management, and they actually want to modulate demand in real time to match the amount of renewable energy hitting the grid. Um, it's still early days, but I think the Nest thermostat is a good example of how the capabilities are evolving. 
to meet that new grid demand. And I actually think what it's doing is it's giving it to consumers. So it's 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 getting consumers much more digitized, giving them more access to information, data about what they're doing. And even if you, regardless of what's going on on the grid, it's giving them a lot more control and power. And I think that's what we're seeing is that, you know, the Nest has a lot of other applications built into it. So over time, I think they're going to be able to do more and more. Okay, so Catherine, over to you. What are the big changes that you see underway that's pushing efficiency into this new paradigm? Yeah, I really do think that it's edge of grid technologies writ large that are now, you know, energy efficiency is just part of that mix. So one example of this is sort of an analogy is that I started um, an association that works that worked on demand response. And over time, it started saying we got to do more than that we got to do distributed energy resources writ large and i think what that means is you know in the same token as dan- demand response energy efficiency is there too because energy efficiency alone has just has been really really difficult to do it's ones and twos it's changing your light bulbs when they go bad now it's like everything is digitized everything is much more holistic so that you see you see it's more of a systemic approach so you have a system in your home that isn't just and in fact it's not just energy sometimes it's your fire alarm system or your home alarm system. So there are a lot more technologies that are able to be brought in together. So it's not it's not the way it used to be viewed. It's much more of the system. Yeah, and um, some efficiency folks out there may disagree with this characterization because it could be a slight oversimplification. But it used to be that efficiency was the, the, the end goal itself. And now efficiency is kind of a means to an end, which is a decarbonized, decentralized grid. Uh, and you're, we're using efficiency as a better real-time tool to integrate those other resources uh, and to make sure, again, that we modulate demand to, so that those resources have more value on the grid. Uh, again, the traditional role of energy efficiency is still extremely important, but it it feels to me like that is what's driving this new realization of efficiency's capabilities. Yeah, there. I talked to the folks from Centrica here um, at the forum, and they said that they have 1.3 million customers controlling their home energy use, and just by having putting it into their hands, over half, almost 60 percent, have cut their gas bill because that's what they're controlling by 12%, just by having the information and being able to have some control over it. So this is, of course, not the first time that we've talked about the new efficiency paradigm. Longtime listeners and longtime GTM readers will remember back in 2012, 2013, we actually came out with a ton of efficiency coverage. We launched an efficiency channel. I actually managed that channel, and we developed a series of reports and conferences around intelligent efficiency. We came up with that term independently, and coincidentally enough, Skip Leitner, who's an energy economist uh, who was at ACEEE at the time, was using that term as well. So uh, he also deserves credit for that term. And and anyway, so so at that time, Intelligent efficiency was really defined by a couple of things. It was all about digitization and thinking about efficiency as a service. The the software tools to measure and track uh, energy savings were getting a lot better. The sensors had gotten much cheaper. And then, of course, better financial tools to spread the benefit uh, and, and better automation. So... Th- that was the, that. That's the characterization of efficiency 2.0, intelligent efficiency, and th- at that time, though, the activity 
was really still all about efficiency improvements on their own, Uh, just cutting energy use, either incrementally or using demand response as an emergency tool. And today, I think what's changed is that this next evolution of, of efficiency is all about taking those tools that have been in development for the last eight or nine years and to think of efficiency as this real-time resource to, to to modulate demand so you can add more renewable resources. And this is what states like New York and California are trying to do. It's actually influencing policy. They're trying to evolve the role of efficiency through regulation so they can better measure it and make it a complementary resource. So I'm curious how this is actually influencing pilot programs and policy in leading states. Uh, Catherine, do you want to take a whack at that? Uh, How is this actually working its way into proceedings and regulation? Yeah, so there are a couple of interesting pieces of this. One is that um, there's something that is a real barrier, which is called the Dillon Rule. And the Dillon Rule, basically, it's in 39 states right now. And what it says that it's a home rule versus Dillon rule thing. So a general assembly at a state has to approve any ordinances that a city or county makes before they can make them. So for example, the county that I live in, Arlington County, wants to do really stiff building codes. They want to, they want to have all new buildings be LEED certified. But the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia does not allow that because Arlington does not have home rule. And so there's this real tension between the state government and local localities. But on the utility front, again, there are also a couple of ways on the utility front. One is, is certainly in decoupled states, utilities are, it's much easier to get, to be able to do energy efficiency because it's not linked to your rate of return the same way it is in a fully integrated uh, utility. But in fully integrated utilities, when they do integrated resource planning, which is their long-term planning process, right now we're working really hard, and I think it's happening in a lot of states, to ensure that energy efficiency is included as a resource in their long-term planning. So that they're not just looking at um, whatever we put into this mix in the end is going to come out a new gas plant, but we're going to look at all of the different resources that we have, including efficiency, when we do our planning. Well, this is one of the areas where I think that energy efficiency starts to break down in terms of in terms of the ability for people to wrap their brain around efficiency and its sort of role in the decarbonization effort. You know, I think that it is obvious to us who are, I would think, more renewable energy focused, that energy efficiency can be sort of used as a way to support more renewable energy on the grid. But I think energy efficiency advocates would say that they actually think that you can actually, you know, use less electricity, right? I mean, even in this electrification of everything uh, mantra, that the current amount of electricity that we have now could go a lot farther if we used it more efficiently. Clearly, you know, like Amory Lovins and Reinventing Fire has done that. I think even Mark Levin at Lawrence Berkeley has talked about integrated design um, and, you know, and, and how that might play in. And I think that the real disconnect that I see is that the vast majority of governors and policymakers just don't believe it. I mean, after 40 years of energy efficiency rebates, I was on NYSERDA's board. You know, I, you know, Governor Cuomo in New York is like, look, if if part of us meeting our decarbonization goals is to achieve a 5% energy efficiency productivity gain every year, I just don't know how we even do it. 
Yeah, and luckily New York has issued an order that has some real good, really good near-term actions, a path toward meeting their ambitious long-term goals, which has clear funding frameworks and flexibility and incentives with shared savings approach. So it looks like they're headed in the right direction, and they expect, if they're able to implement it the way they would like to, $15 billion savings for customers by 2025. Jigger, I'm still trying to figure out what you mean here. Are you just saying that the programs don't work, that policymakers don't believe they work, and why? I don't think I'm totally clear. Yeah, I'm not saying the programs don't work. I just don't think they capture the imagination, right? It's one thing when, like, someone says, we're going to, you know, reduce energy consumption on a per square foot basis by X amount every year, and we're going to get better, and we're going to get better, and here's the paper from Emory Lovins, and here's the paper from Lawrence Berkeley, and here's the lighthouse projects with the Empire State Building, and here's what we did with this and this and this. And then when you're, you know, a 22-year-old leaving college and you've read all the NRDC papers that you can possibly read and you're like, I want to figure out how to be part of this movement. You're like, well, what does that look like? Well, you're like, okay, well, then I'll just get a job at ICF. Like there isn't like a, like what would a solar contractor do if they thought there was a huge pot of gold here from this new public service commission order? How would they do that, right? I mean, it, it's not clear how you would, like, what would your pitch be when you went to the six-story walk-up building hasn't been upgraded that's still using a radiator and everything's not working like you're like well i'm gonna come to you i'm gonna do this thing i think i'm gonna upgrade your stuff oh crap i need a utility to pre-agree with you know the assessment and i need to get win an rfp first to be able to do this project and then you know it, it be it it's not something that inspires the thousands of new workers to join the movement like solar did in New York, right? When we passed the law in 2013, we like over three or four years got 8,000 additional people to work in the solar industry in New York. Well, you're describing an inherent problem in efficiency in that programs are extremely bureaucratic and hard to track. So many of the Let's call them the the guerrilla contractors, or the 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 guerrilla uh, messengers in energy efficiency have been calling for radical changes to these programs. So our listeners may be familiar with Nate Adams, who was on the show talking about home performance, and his colleague Ted Kidd. They came up with this idea for the One Knob program, which is just to say set a greenhouse gas emission target or some kind of uh, megawatt target, and then let the industry figure out how to do it. You know, like, let, let's just set a broad goal, figure out one metric that everyone uses uh, for per, to measure performance, and then just let everyone figure it out and let the industry flourish. And that obviously has its complications in implementation, but seems a heck of a lot more simple than a lot of the bureaucratic uh, offerings that we have today. Right. But the bureaucratic offerings we have today come from the fact that the utilities are the ones who are mandated by this, right? And every time a contractor screws the system and steals money and doesn't do this thing, they're like, oh, we need another set of regulations to make sure that never happens again. And then, you know, like, it, it there is no sort of freedom by which someone can say, here's the measurement and verification, you know, structure. And you just measure before, you measure after, whatever the delta is, you multiply that by a dollar, a kilowatt hour, and that's your subsidy, right? There's no, there's, there's no, pathway by that because it's so complicated and there's a baselining and what happens if the building is used differently before and after and like there's just so many ways to game the system that that in the minds of a lot of people it has to be bureaucratic to avoid theft i love what sce in california is looking to do 
So they went to regulators and said, hey, we've got this pilot program we want to develop. Uh, we want to just measure greenhouse gas emissions. Let's take some money from the cap and trade program, put it into an efficiency program that we manage, and we're just going to measure greenhouse gas reductions. I, I love it because it's a simple metric. There's probably a, a lot of room to maneuver within a program like that in theory. Uh, what do you think about measuring the impact based on, you know, greenhouse gases reduced or using a simple metric like that as a utility? The, I think that the challenge with it, though, becomes as California's grid becomes more green, right, the only way to really save greenhouse gas emissions, I think, is to tie it to when natural gas or, you know, other, you know, uh, fuel sources are being used to provide the power, right? So if you do a bunch of stuff during the middle of the day, it probably doesn't save as much greenhouse gases or or at night in Texas, let's say, with, uh, you know, all the wind that they have. Um, and so, I, you know, my sense is it requires this framework that gets created around some third party validating what the greenhouse gases are by 15-minute period so that you can then calculate what you think the um, uh, savings are from the measures that you're in- instituting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you identified another inherent tension in utility goals and program administration. This stuff is complicated, which is why you have all these program administrators that have popped up that have helped manage these programs for utilities. And you have this kind of inevitable bureaucratic relationship in efficiency that's different than in other renewable energy sectors. Let's wrap this part of the discussion up with two very simple questions. One, what is a thing we couldn't do five years ago in efficiency that we can do today. Catherine. Yeah, so I cheated. I reached out to Neil Elliott from ACEEE, and he's actually on vacation in Key West, and he still responded, which was really sweet of him. And he said the following. He said, one thing we can do today that we couldn't before is intelligent efficiency using connected devices, which is what we've been talking about. He said, we've got sensors and cloud-based processing that allows simulations to provide optimization of local energy-using systems. So that was his response, and, and I trust ACEEE. Jigger, what about you? What's a thing we couldn't do five years ago that we can do today? Yeah, so I think we have enough sensors now to know which measures are working, which ones aren't. I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, is is, is a real challenge in energy efficiency is trying to figure out which part of it, right, lighting versus um, HVAC versus um, energy management systems are the best measure. And, you know, I think today we actually have the ability to have enough data to use sort of AI and machine learning to know what measures worked better than the other measures. So then what's a thing we can't do today that we're going to be able to do five years from now? Catherine? Yeah, so once again, I turned to Neil, and he said that we don't have full closed-loop controls that would take savings to the next level integrating systems. We talked a little bit about this at the grid edge with the, with energy networks. And we also don't have storage and associated controls to allow the optimization of larger systems. So it's this whole integration piece that we still need to get to. Jigger, what about you? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, except I was going to say it a little bit differently. So we have this huge project that we're doing for Hillsborough. Uh, school district in Tampa Bay, and um, it's 244 buildings that we're doing energy efficiency in. And, you know, I reached out to some of the folks that I really respect around integrated design, and they were like, well, you kind of have to slow down your entire process for almost a year or two 
do a ground up model, do all this stuff before we can actually present to you an integrated design. And that's frustrating for me, right? Because we're in the middle of doing all the LED lighting retrofits and now the energy management system upgrades. And, and we have all this data coming out of these school districts and we have all the bills, right? And Google had their power meter where they were supposed to be able to just use the cloud to be able to fix all this stuff. And so, you know, you can't just like do an integrated design by just doing an integrated design. You have to do it through, um, you know, an artist that you bring in for a year and a half to figure it out for you. So are you optimistic about the five-year time horizon then? Well, I mean, it's like most things, right? I'm optimistic in the sense that I think that the technology will be there. I'm not optimistic in that I think a lot of the people that I need to do it are going to design apps for, you know, like for uh, speaking devices and phone in, in homes instead of actually like fixing integrated design software. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think indicative of the bigger challenge of where talent is actually going. Well, coming up, the technology that could help us get a handle on rising carbon emissions from the built environment. Plus, Catherine gives us the scuttlebutt from Davos, where political leaders and business tycoons are converging to discuss the world's problems. First, a word to all the solar developers out there. Do you have a community solar project that needs financing? Are you frustrated by traditional financiers' slow processes and inflexible offerings? Wonder Capital can help. Wonder just launched a progressive new community solar offering that is dedicated to financing projects in ways that other lenders can't. With Wonder, community solar projects can have up to 100% residential offtake. That is super rare. In addition, hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, subscriber FICO scores, they aren't required. So that means that you can branch out to a lot more customers, and customers are going to love that product. Head over to wondercapital.com GTM to submit your community solar projects today. And as always, Wonder can help you with your commercial solar projects too, providing loan terms within two business days. Again, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Let's take a closer look at one set of technologies that are getting a lot of attention, electric heat pumps and electric water heaters. So we've got a problem in this country. Last year, our emissions went up by 3.4%, according to preliminary estimates from the Rhodium Group. And a lot of that increase came from the built environment, where due to a bunch of factors, including seasonal variability, we're using more gas or oil. So as costs decline and performance improves, electric heat pumps are becoming a popular tool of choice for decarbonization. Last year, NRDC modeled electric heating and cooling and electric water heating in California, finding that both technologies could slash emissions by around 50%. NRDC also found that electric heating could contribute to 20% of New York's ambitious new energy efficiency goal. So why is electric heating and cooling now taking center stage? Jigger, why all of a sudden are we talking about this so much more? Well, you know, I think that the technology has frankly gotten a lot better, right? I mean, I think as Nate Adams has talked about it on this podcast and others, air source heat pumps were a joke, right? I mean, people were not happy with air source heat pumps. You sort of did it because you had an attic and you wanted to convert the attic into usable space and you didn't want to, you know, put ducting all the way in your attic. So you basically just put a Mitsubishi Slim outside your room. And if it worked, great. If it didn't work, it's your attic. You don't care, right? And Today, people are saying, no, we're going to replace our entire heating and cooling system with uh, with an air source heat pump. And, you know, they're far more sophisticated now. And I think what Nate has shown in Ohio with a lot of his customers is that he's able to show that his customers 
were able to maintain a comfortable temperature in their home, even when the outside temperature got down to like negative five or negative 10 degrees. And that was never possible. Air source heat pumps were always, you know, something that you're like, well, once it got below freezing, like 32 degrees, then they don't really work. Um, they're able they to- They were cold. To, that was the problem. They pushed out cold hair, cold air. It always felt cold. Yeah, I definitely thought that the um, the feeling of it was was different too. And I, I think the technology's just gotten better to the point where people can feel comfortable with air source heat pumps. And the other challenge is heat pumps in the past were ground source heat pumps, and ground source heat pumps require you know drilling, right? Dandelions doing that, Marmot up in Quebec, and you know, and that stuff is probably still needed for the Northeast, where they're using heating oil for a lot of their you know homes. But um, but I think for people who are on natural gas, um, you know, it, it it wasn't really something that was needed, and so now that the technology has gotten good enough, I think people are talking about it. Yeah, I have a quick story from my old utility days in the 80s. We used to push dual fuel systems because there were a lot of people that had gas and we would go and install electric heat pumps too. So it was like we worked with the gas industry for efficient gas backup infrastructure. So there are all these systems out there that are legacy systems that we worked really hard to make sure we got in because we thought they were the most efficient systems that could still allow kilowatt hour sales. Shout out to the Mitsubishi Slim I had one of those in my 300-square-foot <laughs> apartment when I lived in D.C., and uh, I loved that thing. Yeah, you know, the, the one thing that I recognized, though, as I was reading the Green Tech Media coverage of this uh, NRDC report is how there wasn't literally a single calculation around payback for the consumer because it's not great. I mean, that's the thing that's crazy, right, is if you're going to build a brand-new house and put in an air source heat pump, you might be able to make it justified and you have a 30-year mortgage, it's fine. But if you put in a new air source heat pump for your existing furnace now, it's not a great payback if you're on natural gas. Uh, Okay, so we go from feel-good discussion to reality. The question is what kind of local rebate programs are set up. As attention turns to heat pumps, you're seeing city governments, local utilities, and states develop incentive programs specifically for these technologies. So they're becoming a lot more cost-competitive for that reason. Uh, and then, you know, the long-term operating costs do look pretty good for these air source heat pumps. The technology is getting better, and you don't have a fuel risk cost. But certainly, um, it, it really only makes sense for people who are changing out their equipment, they have old equipment, or buying a new house, or getting a decent rebate from a local utility or state. But this goes back to the last uh, segment of the podcast, which is that Like, why are we left with such terrible options with energy efficiency? I mean, it's just so dumb, right? Like, so if you're the electric utility company, you presumably want growth. You want to sell more electrons, right? I mean, that's generally the way business works. And so one of the ways for you to sell more electrons is to electrify heating and cooling, right? So you move it away from gas and bring it over to electricity, right? In the the 1980s, Right, most of the utility companies in the Northwest and in Florida basically figured out a way to force all their customers onto electric water heating. It wasn't better for them back then, but they wanted to sell more kilowatt hours, and they figured out a way to force it. Like, why can't they just force everyone to do electric heat pumps? Right? I don't understand the whole rebate thing and 
this and that and other bullshit. Well, I like, think they will. I, well, they're using. I mean, I think that they, they they're going to just just think about what you think they did in the eighties. In literally a three to four year time period, everyone got their water heater replaced. You tell me whether these utilities have the guts to go in and convert everyone's heating and cooling system to electric heat pumps in a three to four year period. Well, they they don't. That that time frame is not going to happen. But we're seeing a lot of movement from utilities in support of heat pumps specifically and broader electrification strategies because they know it's ultimately good for them. Uh, so so I, I think that that movement is happening, but certainly not in the way that you described it from the 80s. But I, right. I'm, and, I'm fairly optimistic and, about their movement on these issues. Right. But I think it matters because remember why they did this in the 80s, right? The reason we have pumped hydro in this country is because when we built all these nuclear plants in the 70s, we had way too much electricity. We had so much electricity was coming out of our ears, and we didn't know what to do with it. That's why they were able to get the public service commissions to mandate that all of these um, these homes turn to electric water heating. Today, what do we have? We have renewable energy coming out of our ears. We have more electricity capacity in this country with higher safety factors than we've ever had. And this would be a great time to electrify everything. And this would be the great way for the electric utility companies to prove once and for all that they don't hate renewable energy. But I don't know that they're going to put as much gusto behind this than they did to support their nuclear efforts back in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know how the regulators would feel about that, too. So I think we have to be pretty thoughtful about how we would roll that out and how it would pair, because you do, what you don't want is a bunch of huge demand increase. One of the amazing numbers that I found here is that you know demand has doubled globally. It's not in the U.S., but it's doubled globally, and it's in huge part because of air conditioning load and air conditioning increase. So this is essentially the same thing. So while 90% of people in the U.S. have air conditioning, only 6% in India and 2% in Africa. So India and Africa, they're installing AC as fast as they can. And, you know, what we have to do is make sure that all of this is efficient and that it's paired with something else, whether it's in the U.S. or elsewhere. Yeah, there's an inherent tension here, which is why I brought this set of issues up as part of the efficiency debate, because the efficiency industry, the efficiency movement is embracing electrification because many of these devices are more efficient individually compared with their fossil fueled counterparts. But taken in their entirety, this electrification strategy will increase overall demand in utility territories. So there is this tension in goals. And I think that the efficiency industry is going to need to work that out. But ultimately, most people agree that electrification is a good thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I get the tension, right? But the tension doesn't exist in, in the total industry, right? From my perspective, we need to get off of fossil fuels. That means we need to convert as much fossil fuel usage as we can into, electri- into electricity. That means electric vehicles. It means electric HVAC systems. It means as much of our economy being electric as possible. And then I'm confident we can then decarbonize the generation that provides those electrons. All right. So let's go into our third segment and wrap up the show. Catherine only has five minutes before she needs to clear that room. So we wanted to get a sense of what the business leaders and global uh, p- political leaders there are talking about when it comes to energy. So give us the, the highlights there, Catherine. 
Okay, first, I know that this is an enormous privilege that I'm so lucky to be able to do this. And hopefully I can just share what is here and that people are able to access a lot of information about the forum because and, and this meeting because there is an amazing amount of work that really goes on. Um, the theme is globalization 4.0. So there's a lot of you know, geopolitical unrest. Certainly we have seen that in our own country where there's less cooperation and more competition. So that's kind of been the theme. And certainly climate has been really front and center in all of these conversations. Um, there's some good things about energy. I've been involved in a lot of energy panels and conversations. So half of all new electricity is supplied by renewables. But of course, as I said, there's this massive increase in demand from air conditioning. Um, emissions have been going up. There are a lot of hard to abate sectors like industrial shipping, aviation, building materials that we need to think about. There are people really working hard on those. Uh, China cut their coal by 30%. But of that, of that 30%, they replaced it with 40% renewables and 60% fossil in the form of gas and oil. So, so China still has a lot of work to do. Um, really good news that Oh, we used to have 2 billion people without access to electricity. And I think last year they announced that it was 1.5 and now it's only 1 billion. Still, that's a billion people without access. Um, but we're moving in the right direction. You know, there are a lot of NGOs, universities, corporate people here, and everybody kind of tries to learn and come together on, you know, what can we actually do? And the good news is that the people who can make the decisions are here. So they get to hear everything we're saying about we need, you know, all the solutions, because we really believe that the solutions exist. We just have to really, really accelerate them. So this for me gives me, um, you know, I've got a sense of urgency, as everybody should, about climate, but this is also giving me a much better sense of what other people are doing. It's helping me learn about the issues and connect to those who can really make a difference. Yeah, so that's all great and to be expected, I think. But the, the perception there is that this event is a highfalutin place where rich people talk about solutions to the world's problems. And that's it's only that. It's just like, let's talk about the problems. And then uh, there's a disconnect between the reality of the world's problems and the way that these people perceive those problems. So how do you take all that important conversation and turn it into something real? I mean, are people doing that from this event? Yes, they do. They make commitments. They try to make sure they have um, real actions that can have impacts. They also really try to educate the people who come with new technologies. So they invite a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of young global leaders and shapers can come in and they have an accessibility exhibit, which is amazing, that has um, all kinds of technologies exhibited, new technology for people who have a variety of disabilities. They have virtual reality exhibits that just, what they're trying to do is socialize issues and problems so that people can really go forward and do something about them. And I think they're pretty successful about doing it and they follow up. So this isn't, you know, this is a culmination of work and it's also the beginning of work. So it's, it's over years. It's not like there, this is a moment in time when a lot of people come together and yes, they have a lot of nice dinners and things, but at the same time they work hard to try to figure out what are the big problems we have to try to get our heads around and then try to figure out a resolution. What is one fact development or quote or conversation that you've had that makes you feel positive about where things are going? Yeah, so I, I, I gave you some facts, but my free electron kind of plays into that theme. I got to hear two really great speakers, Jane Goodall, who is one of my absolute heroes, and Sir David Attenborough that everybody knows from the Planet Earth series. And they both have really 
a really integrated climate change into all of their messaging and all of the work that they do. So a really great announcement is that April 5th on Netflix, Our Planet will air. There will be, it's an eight-part series that Sir David Attenborough has put worked on, and it's really trying to connect humanity with the rest of the world. And he says, you know, if you wreck... If you wreck nature, you wreck humanity. And, you know, 50% of our species have disappeared already. And I think these folks are working really hard to change that. And I'm hoping, just like my all my kids love that series, that everybody will tune in April 5th to download and binge. I will definitely tune into that. I know you have to go. Thanks for joining us from Davos, Catherine. Well, goodbye. Next time I will be taping from probably a less cold climate. <laughs> <laughs> Safe travels. All right. Take care. It's just me and you, Jigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like old times. There's not enough. There's not enough space in here for the two of us. <laughs> not in that closet of yours. Yeah. What's your free electron? So there were a lot of big announcements this last week, and I just want to make sure that people recognize how much progress we're making. We always talk about levelized cost of energy and how solar and wind are getting cheaper, but you know, Google announced. Um, a way to force TVA to do 413 megawatts of solar in Tennessee and northern Alabama, which I think are two states that are not ones that we think about when we think about large renewable energy projects. And then separately, Florida Power and Light announced they were going to do 10 million solar panels, which is roughly you know um, 10,000 uh, megawatts of solar in uh, in their territory, and so. It just does seem like we're going to hit all 50 states here not so in the not-so-distant future. Are these announcements due to pressure on utilities or oh, yeah. utilities making these decisions themselves? Well, in, in Google's case, you know, they made it very clear that they were not going to bring this level of economic development in the form of data centers to Tennessee and northern Alabama unless TVA allowed them to 100% power them with renewable energy. And so and this is similar to how... You know, Amazon brought Dominion to their knees in Virginia to force them to do the right thing in Virginia, right? And so you're seeing a lot of these states, the utilities are just being told, you're not going to get all this load growth, which is what you desperately want, unless you allow us to power it with renewable energy, and they're going along with it. Um, in Florida, remember, we passed all these ballot initiatives in 2016 that basically finally opened up the the market to, to solar. And Florida Power & Light, in true next era form, is saying, we want to own it all. So they want to own all 10,000 megawatts of solar that they're constructing. They don't want outside parties um, doing any development work in their territory. They just want to own it all, which I'm okay with, frankly. Like, I, you know, like, yes, I believe the private sector is the most efficient way of putting this stuff in. But if, you know, Florida Power Light wants to do it inefficiently, you know, as long as we get 10,000 megawatts of solar, I'm good. Many bad things can be said about the way these big tech companies wield their power, but this seems to be a good one. You know, they can go in and literally force a utility to make a market-changing decision on renewable energy. Well, they may have had a snippet of, uh, of audio from, you know, an Amazon Echo that they used as blackmail. <laughs> they are recording every single conversation, folks, including those of utility executives. Who knows what Amazon Alexa conversations will force the next big utility solar procurement. So Catherine mentioned that series that's going to go live in April. There's another set of documentaries that just came out on Netflix and Hulu about the Fire Festival, this big festival that in the Bahamas that went bust in 2017. Did you see these, Jigger? Do you know about the Fire Festival? No. 
So the Fire Festival is the brainchild of this guy named Billy McFarland, who is a young fraudster in entrepreneur's clothing who spent his career convincing people to give him money to pay for his previous scams. And he met up with Ja Rule, a famous rapper, and created an, a booking app for large talent. And as part of that startup, they developed a mega music festival, or what they call the mega music festival, and engaged in this crazy social media campaign to convince rich millennials to come to the Bahamas and spend tens of thousands of dollars at this elite music festival. And as time went on, it became clear that this music festival was a complete scam. And in 2017, when people actually arrived, it was a total disaster. Folks were stranded. It became this crisis on social media. And a lot of people reveled in the fact that these rich millennials lost their money for this music festival. Anyway, this guy, Billy McFarlane, is a really fascinating character and a complete fraudster and is in prison now for six years for wire fraud. But I didn't realize, and this came out in the uh, both documentaries, that Aubrey McClendon, the natural gas tycoon who died in a car crash the day after getting indicted by a federal grand jury for running a, bid, uh, a big bidding scam for drilling acreage, he was a big investor in one of Billy's earlier companies, this bogus exclusive credit card for millennials. Uh, and when McClendon died, it actually caused McFarland's company to spiral. And it's partly what led him to start his next venture, which created this disaster, this disaster of a festival, the fire festival that captured everyone's attention. So it was Aubrey McClendon who partly set the dominoes in motion that caused this crisis. And I just thought that was that that tickled me as I watched the documentary. I didn't realize that. Yeah, well, you know, Aubrey had a uh, a glorious, uh, you know, life, I think. I mean, he was also the main reason why we're killing coal plants in this country. No scams here, folks. Just uh, pure, unadulterated conversations about the future of energy. If you appreciate what we're doing here, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we're going to send our appreciation right back to you by giving the author of our favorite review a free subscription to GTM Squared. You've got until January 31st. Who knows? Uh, maybe we'll create our own festival, Jigger. What do you think? What would you call our, our Energy Gang Festival? The Festivist for the rest of us. That's right. <laughs> well, hopefully y'all can make that when it finally materializes. In the meantime, just hit us up on Twitter. If you want to send show ideas, commentary, or questions with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week, folks. 